Welcome to Money Talks, a series of interviews with me, Liam Halligan, Economics and Business Editor of GB News. In this episode, I talk to serial entrepreneur and thought leader Piers Linney. Born in Stoke-on-Trent, Piers grew up in Lancashire, the son of a mother from Barbados and a father from Manchester. With a professional background in law and banking, he appeared as an investor on the BBC's Dragon's Den and the Channel 4 series Secret Millionaire. Piers is also a non-executive director of the British Business Bank and a trustee of the innovation foundation Nesta. In 2021, Piers founded Moblock, a tech platform and consultancy service for small businesses, with a mission, he says, to support small business owners to make better informed technology purchasing decisions. Piers, it's great to have you here on The Money. Thanks a lot for coming in. Are you surprised you ended up as a businessman? What about the young Piers Linney knocking around the playground up there, born in Stoke-on-Trent, educated in the north? Were you always going to be an entrepreneur? So my my first business, um, so I had a paper on the north, and those days I got paid £5 a week, and that's when snowdrifts covered your car. And, <laughs> and I thought, this is, a, this is a, got to be a better way. So I, my dad one morning said to me, look, I don't want to get out of bed on a Sunday because they would have delivered papers. Can you get my paper? So I went down to the news agent on my bike, picked up a paper, brought it back. He paid me and gave me sort of a tip. Yeah. And I thought, hang on, there's something in this. So I could sort of um, went to fly out all my neighbours and I started delivering their papers on Sundays. And I built a paper round business. And then I disintermediated the news agent I went straight to the wholesaler, and then I built. <laughs> and the they paper. loved you. Yeah, they, well, they didn't really deliver, so they didn't really care. They didn't really know actually. So I had this big bundle of papers dropped to my parents' doorstep every Sunday, and I made twenty pounds on Sunday morning. So, and I learned then actually, for all all the things you need to know about business was find a problem, solve it, and work hard. And that was my first entree. And after that, I was always in business, whether I was a college, university, law school, even when I was working in the city, uh, these sort of side hustles, they call them now. I find, in my experience, so many entrepreneurs come from an immigrant background. I'm from an Irish immigrant background, as you probably know. Most people in my family work for themselves, they're entrepreneurial, even if at a very small scale, it's all about doing your own thing and being independent. I know you come from a similar background, don't you? Tell us how your mum came to the UK, how your mum and dad met and the influence that that kind of mixed heritage had on you? Well, it's huge. I mean, I am, I am my mixed heritage, no doubt about it. So my, my parents weren't really in business. Um, my dad was a working class Mancunian lad from Cheatham Hill, very bright. So he, he actually went to Cambridge. But in those days, you kind of went and you came back again. Yeah. So he didn't get to join the club. Uh, but he was in uh, naval intelligence. He spoke sort of seven languages. Um, he died sadly during grammar COVID. School boy. COVID um, uh, grammar school boy in Manchester. And he worked in export because he loved languages, loved traveling, went to 100 countries some 40 times. So he was kind of a senior management in a, in, in a sort of a large, what, what's now, I think it's now, it was BTR at the time, a big industrial company. And my mum was a Barbadian from Barbados. She came over to be a nurse in the 60s. My mum met this black woman as some dance, fell head over heels in love with her. Uh, <laughs> and and they, they, they got together at a time, actually, when people, that relationship was very, very So it was this mid-late 60s? Yeah, yeah. mid-60s. And also very rare when it was you know, the, the, the black woman yeah. and the white guy. That was even yeah. rarer that way around. Yeah, yeah. And um, so my, we moved to the north of England. My dad got a job in Manchester. I kind of grew up in Stoke till I was nine. 
And then I, I grew up in these like in this mill town basically. And one of my things I love, which is why I got into law, was history. So when we talked about history, like the Weaver's Cottage and the Industrial Revolution and the mills, we could look out the window of our mm. school and see it, it was all there. there. Yeah, <laughs> it was all sort of scarred in the landscape. And and through that and those those entrepreneurs and the U.S. entrepreneurs of the, of the sort of the age. I was fascinated by a sort of business, but I didn't understand it. And nobody in my net, all my people I knew in business were joiners, brickies, owned a quarry. It was all sort of stuff he did with your hands. When I said to everybody, I want to go into business, what should I do? Everybody said you should be an accountant, which was really bad advice. <laughs> yeah, so, and, uh, but, and then eventually I, I did a law and accounting degree. And then it's another, need another show for this story. But I got from there to a city lawyer to work in at Credit Suisse, what was then Credit Suisse, First Boston, which was earning more money than my parents probably earned as a bonus, put together a year. So it was quite a journey. It's an incredible story of British social mobility, isn't it? Your dad's story in its own right, your mum's story in its own right, their combined story, really astonishing, producing you. But there you were, you'd worked for a prestigious law firm, you're doing your thing in the city of London, you're earning good money, you went to Manchester University yourself. You could have just stayed there being a very respectable, professional person earning decent money for the rest of your life. But you decided to break out from being a salary man, if you like, albeit a pretty well paid yeah, one. Pretty well paid one. Um, so my mum, actually, going back to my mum slightly quickly, she started a business after she retired. So wow. in Barbados, my mum wanted to work in a bank. And you couldn't work in a bank then, really, unless she was sort of a white Asian. It was, so she thought, forget it. I'm going to the UK to be a nurse. Went for a whole career, stopped. And then she started. So she was the enterprising one in a way. What sort of business did your mum start? So she had uh, wedding flowers, accessories. She okay. did weddings, did, did my wedding. She built quite a nice little business. My dad was a driver. <laughs> so he, he was promoted to be <laughs> her driver. Took his orders. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she, she went into business later on. Um, and I, I guess I took it from there. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it was actually in a sort of... 50s, I think you will got to be careful in case she watches this. Um, <laughs> but my, my, I was always in business. So uh, young paper rounds. Um, at, at college, I was selling sort of these sort of similar perfumes to the well-known perfumes. Uh, and then I was, Steady. and then I was, then I was at a university doing parties, law school doing company formations, uh, and then film finance as well. And my, one of my, well, the guy that sort of got me into film finance, he went on to run uh, Lionsgate in Europe. So I was always in business. So when the when I was in the city, I had this sort of skill set I developed and the internet boom came along, like the gold rush. It made sense to step out. And if you look at most of the entrepreneurs at the time that started dot-coms, they were investment bankers or wealthy yeah. or they were uh, man management consultants. Because I could take two, I thought, I could take two years out, start a business, and if it goes wrong, I can go back to the city. Clearly, dot-com bust. My bridge back was sort of burnt or crisp, mm. so I can, only, I can only really go forwards. Mm. I've never worked for anyone since. Good for you. You've carved out a profile for yourself. Um, you've been on Dragon's Den, you've been on the Channel 4 series, Secret Millionaire, um, and now you've set up a new business for yourself, Moblox. Tell us what the rationale is behind Moblox. When did it begin, and what's the vision, Piers? So I, I've sort of championed entrepreneurship, small businesses, you know, since Dragon's Den, actually, probably. Uh, and I get frustrated that most small businesses, they don't get the support they need. They don't get the guidance. You're on the internet. Um, it's, it's all kind of, you know, ask the universe, mindset nonsense. Mm. And it frustrated me. And I, I used to own and run one of the UK's largest 
sort of small business service providers in mobile to connectivity and data and cloud. Mm. And what I learned, even the big the big telcos, the big service providers, they were very they were just selling small small companies stuff. Well, their channel was stuff they didn't need. Mm. They were being missold mm. just to earn a commission. And I thought there's got to be a better way. So to help small and medium-sized enterprises buy their well, tech services, th th right? there's a big issue in the UK, which is well documented. It's baked into the, into the industrial strategy. Is that UK small companies are not as productive as they should be, right? And the question you've got to ask yourself: Why is that? So one of the main reasons is they're not embracing technology. So you've got this explosion of technology, cloud technology, software as a service. It's all there. It can all be accessed by anybody now, any company of any size. But unless you know your options and understand what you should be buying for your business at your size, scale, budget, ambition, um, how the hell do you choose? And the answer normally is I ask my mate or again, my accountant, which yeah. is normally the wrong thing to do as well. So Moblox, a new business really, is about helping small businesses understand their technology options and they purchase their technology and communication solutions from Moblox or through Moblox. Mm. And not until about five years ago, you had a local IT communications provider that helped you understand your options. It costed in, now it doesn't. So we're providing content, helping you make a purchasing decision, a better informed one, and then you buy it from us or through us. Eventually, the idea is, is that you can provision all your services and run your entire small business on the Moblox platform. So we become a, a champion and a, <coughs> given it's a rail strike going on at the moment, I wouldn't mention union, <laughs> but we become <laughs> like a, a kind of an organization that consolidates the power of these small businesses and takes it into the market and gets some better deals as well. Now you say it, it seems obvious, of course, small and medium-sized enterprises, they're half our economy, they employ two thirds of our people. They're all trying to embrace tech in one form or another, whether it's online payments or setting up a website or sorting out their social media. No one can ignore this. Well, they should be doing that anymore. They often don't because they don't know how to. Yeah, and 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 you, I guess you can help them because you can purchase these services in block form and maybe give this SMEs a better price. Yeah. Certainly, you can guide them through this jungle where a lot of people are just trying to sell them stuff that they don't need, right? Yeah, so that's exactly right. That's, you hit the nail on the head. So the idea is, is that we want to make things better, simpler, cheaper, more flexible. So we want to turn as many fixed costs as you can into variable costs and, and make things smarter. So Moblox, in a way, is kind of look, look at the fintechs, the neobanks, the Starlings, Tides, you know, the Monzos. <clears throat> and we're kind of taking that, that model, that customer-centric, software-driven model into small business services. So you can focus on what you're good at, making your thing or selling your products or service. Um, that's what you should be doing, not worrying about technology. So we want to sort of make their lives a lot easier. They complain about small business owners' time and, and simplicity. There's a lack of it. Now, you clearly are a champion of SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. We focus on SMEs here, on the money a great deal uh, as well. Do you think we underplay SMEs here in the UK? Do you think we understate their significance? The media, for instance, it always wants to hear from the CBI and the Institute of Directors who don't really talk much to the small and medium-sized enterprises. Government tends to focus on big corporate monoliths and household names, again, rather than the small and medium-sized enterprises that, as I say, employ most people. And why is that? So the reason is because 
There are groups like, you know, the CBI. These are lobby groups that represent large organizations that chip in a lot of cash to all the wheels, which is fine. That's how it works. Small, the interview with small businesses is, this is why no one's, if I ask you, what is the UK small business brand? Mm. It's, there isn't it, one. Yeah, there isn't one really. I, is I, I want to create it. Basically. Yeah. So, and the reason for that is because small business owners, there are the six million small businesses, the six million different people mm. doing six million quite different things. Or, trying or, to keep the shower the right, same right? thing in different ways. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just trying to keep the lights on. So it's very hard to pin down a small business. So the large organisations they struggle. So they they put in place a channel, a sales to like my old business that sells to small organizations and incentivize them through these short-term commissions, which means they don't get a service or a relationship they should It's do. not bespoke, is it? No. So Take it or leave it's it, It's not basically. designed yeah. small businesses. So I think that given the importance of the economy, that needs to change. And the other thing about small businesses, and you see this when they, they slip through the cracks during the COVID support, is that it's hard to identify them. How do you? So unless you've got a limited company, you've got some employees or HMRC, you can't put a piece of paper between a small business P&L and it's owner's personal P&L. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you just can't do it. And that's one of the issues. If you can't identify it and you can't measure it, you can't manage it. What do you think of the business environment in the UK at the moment? Corporation taxes soon to go up from 19 to 25%. SMEs, all firms have just been hit with an increase in national insurance. There isn't the kind of bonfire of red tape that many of us were promised in the immediate years post us leaving the European Union. Yes, indeed, the UK small business sector thrives, strives, generates a lot of ideas, a lot of tax revenue, and a lot of employment. Do you think the government's holding it back? Wow, <laughs> that's a big question. So I think macro, the, the age of the big business is disappearing. So my view is, is that within a generation, we're all going to be working for ourselves because large organisations, there's going to be a collection of projects and they're going to hire individuals or small groups of people in to deliver them. The idea of employment, you already see the cracks appearing, zero hour contracts, it's going away. I wasn't a big fan of Brexit or leaving the EU at all, I think, but you are where you are. Now, my big question is always, okay, we are where we are, we're this independent nation, what's the plan? Mm. You know, how do we differentiate? I, I before, before we met today, I was sort of looking up, you know, the, the Brexit opportunities. What the hell are they? Because mm. we need to find them and differentiate the UK economy uh, within this, this world. Because, you know, in a global economy, we can't sit here thinking we can be, you know, King Canute pushing back the waves. You can't do it. So we need to find a way of differentiating the UK, just like a business, and executing that plan. And I, no matter how hard I try, I just don't see it. We're just sort of going around in circles, talking about the same things. And the only way we all know out of the situation we're in, which now we've got inflation, is, is growth. The pie has to be bigger so we can share it out in probably a more efficient way. Otherwise, the pie, looking at the latest numbers into GDP, is actually getting smaller. Tax is going up. So who's being impacted? Uh, Small uh, business owners. At the time of this discussion, GDP's contracted on preliminary exactly. figures for the last two yeah, exactly. months. Crikey. So what are we good at, Piers Linney? What should the UK really be stressing? Let's pretend that I'm the Prime Minister. I bring you in as my special economic advisor. Piers, what's it to be? I'll see if I do that one day. <laughs> so, uh, so essentially, I look at the UK as, right, why are we different? Now, what we're very good at, we're innovators. Um, we still are. But part of the, and I was on the board of the Government Development Bank, British Business Bank, and you see where the money is going. Innovation isn't always deep tech, 
um, you know, ridding the world of carbon, AI. Mm. That's great. We need to have that. Often, notice what happens is they get to a point and they're acquired by a US company or someone in China. So that's one of the issues. We need to invest in, I think, the technology and the capability and the productivity of our business, of our entrepreneurs and small businesses. And then I always say ambition is evenly distributed. Capital networks isn't. So unless you actually distribute the ability to access networks and capital to grow your business, the UK is always going to be a disadvantage. And that's what levelling up should be about. Well, let's come on to that. To what extent do you think that, um, say, your mixed-raised heritage, for instance, may or may not have held you back in business? To what extent do you think the UK is failing to really harness our talent, our diversity of talent, in all its forms of diversity, regional diversity, ethnic diversity, racial diversity? Um, that, that's a global issue. But in the UK, I'm actually on the Diversity Advisory Council at Sky. So Sky is a very big organisation, um, so I can't talk for Sky, but because of the scale of it, you can see the impact of initiatives. And I think one of the beauties of the way of COVID, in a way, if, if there is one, is that we're now used to video conferencing. So mm. your talent pool now is not limited by who lives mm. within half an hour or an hour at least, most, of the postcode you happen to stick your office in because you like the Starbucks down the road. So mm. that that's changing our dynamic. So you should be able to access talent anywhere. I and mean, we recruit people sometimes that they're not even in the UK. Mm. So, And that can really help talent, with level, regional levelling up, It should it? make a huge difference, yeah, yeah. actually, because I agree. rather than building railways... I think that's railways, understated. You know, I agree. Rather than building railways, you can bring people to you, mm. you know, over the internet. Now, you always need to meet some way. Mm. So accessing talent, no matter who they are, who they love, what God they worship, yeah, whatever, is actually really important. And that creates a competitive advantage. Large organisations get it, and they're putting processes and groups to make it happen. Often, small business owners don't get it because they don't, they don't always, they think that their customers are the ones walking past their shop window. And it's not always the case. You can have your products now on platforms where you can sell them globally. So unless you understand your end customer and your supply chain, which can be very diverse, then you're always going to be a disadvantage. To what extent do you think this government has a chance of making a, a proper fist of levelling up. You know, you, you're born in uh, the, the Midlands, you grew up in the North, you're obviously a very regionally conscious person in, uh, in, in British business, as well as obviously being racially conscious as well. Do you think levelling up, as it's so far been implemented, is anything more than just a slogan, Piers? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> if I'm really honest with you, I can answer that one pretty succinctly, actually. Um, we, we've got to move away from PR. Uh, and the thing about levelling up is that no one government can level up. Levelling up is a generational uh, project, let's face it, OK? Uh, it's infrastructure, it's education, it's access to capital, access to talent. And that's not going to happen in any one term of any government. So you've got to look beyond the PR mm. and, and, and one administration and really think about, and I think people understand how to do it, but they're not really willing to commit the, the, the funding required and the energy to it in between elections. What would be your main policy then? If, if we're talking about economic levelling up and regional levelling up, what is the most important thing in your view? Is it infrastructure? Is it transport? Or do you think post-COVID that's changed? So it's really, if you... Um, we sit here today talking about the UK economy. 
if you zoom out, I, I was a trustee of Nesta for six years, which is the UK's largest innovation foundation. And they did some research, okay? And what this research does is look at the, the impact of AI and robotics mm. on, on, the, on the economy. Mm. So if you pick a, reg a region and say, how in five, 10, 15, 30, even 50 years, mm. does new technology impact the labor market in that region? You can see some regions where the idea of a job disappears. Mm. So the problem today as well is, is with leveling up and all these plans is that they're quite short-sighted. We have to almost look out 10, 20, 30 years of how will the UK look when all this technology eventually, because it will incrementally improve over time. And we're going from this linear age, and our backgrounds are growing at 5%, or is it 20, or is it 10? Mm. What's the percentage growth? If we do move into an exponential growth, an exponential change in technology, we can't comprehend it. It's like COVID where you hear someone's got a cough in China and suddenly your mm. kids can't go to school. That is geometric exponential progression. And that's going to happen in the economy and in technology. So we can't comprehend it. So we've got to plan an economy literally with that foresight and nobody's doing it. In general, how impressed with are you with people who you meet in politics with our policymakers. You're from a very dynamic, commercial, hard-driving business background. And increasingly, there are people like you on the fringes of government, on the fringes of policymaking, and so on. I often feel there's pushback towards people like you, people who actually get stuff done from what some people would call the blob. Have you ever experienced that? Um, what, the blob? <laughs> the... Uh... I think that you're right, there are more politicians with more experience, but I think as you, even the Chancellor, he's had some mud thrown at him, but as you, as you get into policy, you realise, and I know quite a few politicians, is that at some point you've got the whip, at some point there's a policy, there's a, there's a, there's, you've got to adhere to something that perhaps you don't want to, perhaps your commercial now is telling you shouldn't, but you've got to look after a particular interest group, That's right. even a special interest group. Yeah. So, Therefore, everything you've learned just gets dropped. I think until you see more um, sort of commercial, private sector experience in government, that won't change. But look at the US, right? So the US, you have a lot of that. I mean, most of them are quite highfalutin lawyers, aren't they? And that's even more of a mess. Piers, if you could change one thing about how we run this country, final question. In all your experience in business, the ex policy advice you're giving, to ministers and these other organisations that we've discussed, what would that one thing be that you could change? Well, sadly, the one thing has a few components. So, but it is, you have to reduce the friction for somebody with an idea, the willingness to build a business, to, to work for themselves, to, to create value and wealth, to be able to do it, no matter who they are and no matter where they are. That's it. Access capital, know-how, technology, and just you know, be who you want to be, no matter what your background is or what postcode you grew up in. In all a, a more business-friendly yeah. environment. So levelling up, actually, is a really important part of our future. It's just you've got to make it happen. And also, the, the answer on that cherry on that cake is take that long-term view, not just five, ten years, because no, there's no point investing in regions that are going to be completely disintermediated in terms of labour market by AI and robotics in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Piers Linney, great to have you on Money Talks. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for listening to Money Talks with me, Liam Halligan. 
economics and business editor of GB News. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, YouTube or wherever you're listening. Do subscribe to this podcast and also check out my daily television show, On The Money, at 1pm Monday to Friday on GB News or via the GB News app. GB News, Britain's news channel.